I'm just going to stay up here. I'm your preacher for today. Jason's going to be back uh, next week. So hang in there. Um, it's been a while since I've actually been up here to preach. And uh, I, uh, I used to have a hard time filling 20 minutes. And now my job is to speak for an hour every day. So we might just be here for an hour. <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to be that long. But, uh, but uh, there's lots that I want to cover today. In your bulletins is the verse that we're going to work through. It's 1 Peter uh, 2, 9, and 10, so you can turn to that if you want. I'm going to read it to get us started, and then uh, we're going to work our way around into the Old Testament and then come back to that towards the end. So, You notice there there's a huge open section called Notes. That's all I'm going to say. I, uh, I always give my students a hard time and say, you know, there's going to be a test at the end of this, okay? So take good notes. Um, I'm not the one administering the test at the end of this, but there's going to be a test at the end of this. So 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may, de- that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The first verse, uh, verse 9 there, where it talks about a a chosen people and a priesthood, that's what we're going to focus on today. But uh, I wanted to jump back to sort of give us an overview of uh, the nation of Israel and the role of priests in their time and sort of the sacrificial society that they lived in. And I think we in North America, we really don't grasp sacrifice. Um, We don't grasp sacrifice in a general sense, but I don't think we really fully grasp um, the nation of Israel and what it took when they sacrificed to their God. So to give us a sort of an overview of what it means when it talks about a royal priesthood, um, in the beginning, um, the Israelite nation was traveling throughout uh, the desert. Uh, They were... They were wandering for 40 years, and with them they carried the tabernacle. And everywhere they sat down, um, whether for a night or for years, um, they set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this tent, for all intents and purposes, in the middle of the nation of Israel. And in the tent, in the center of the tent, resided God. His presence was there with his people. And because of this, um, there was a need for someone to intercede, to stand between them and God. Uh, The sins of the nation had separated them from God, and the priesthood was what stood there and connected them back to their father. Um, So it was really important, this role of the priests in um, the beginning for the Israelite nation. And so you'd have this nation of tents, literally a nation of tents planted in the desert, and in the center, this tent tabernacle. Later on, it became the temple, but for all intents and purposes now, we're going to focus on the tabernacle. And, and you had these priests who, who blessed the people, spoke to God for the people, prayed for them, offered sacrifices, um, and it was central to who they were as believers of Yahweh, of God. Um, and I think there's no comparison for us as Christians today to that. There are some some things, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but but there's, it's really hard to get an idea of how important it was for them to go to the temple, to go to the tabernacle, and actually sacrifice something to their Lord. So, um, 
this sort of role of the, the priests uh, was special. Uh, it wasn't for everyone. Only the tribe of Levi were ones set aside by God for the purpose of offering sacrifices, praying on behalf of the people, coming into the presence of God. So it was something that they took serious. Um, but it all is a result of sin. It's all there. There's no good reason for it to be there other than because sin has separated us from our Father, separated them as a nation from God, and they were to stand in between to connect the two. Um, I was thinking through this, and as you're, as you're dragging an animal up to the altar to be sacrificed, I have no way to connect to that. I don't think anyone here has ever sacrificed an animal to God. Um, it seems so foreign, so alien. It's taboo. Like if I brought in a chicken today to sacrifice, probably not going to go over too well in this church. Um, it's not who we are. We're so disconnected. But to them, to the Israelites, um, taking something to your God to sacrifice was central to their faith, central to their worship to God. So um, I don't know how I can connect to that. I don't know um, how to, for my mind, to actually uh, click with that. But to understand that it was important to them that it was the way that they spoke to Jesus or spoke to God um, is very important for us today. So imagine this, even though it's tough. You're standing in this, this giant desert surrounded by tents of all your people um, in the center, metaphysically and physically, right there in the center is, is your God sitting, waiting for you. And you've had a bad day and you've sinned. And now it's time to make that right with God. So what do you do? You go to the back, you grab a lamb, you tie it up, and you walk it through the tents of your nation, and everybody's going, oh, he's got a lamb. He must have done something wrong with his wife. She must be some angry. He must have sinned. You're dragging the animal, which is a symbol of your sin and your, your brokenness with your God, through the nation. You walk it up to the tabernacle, you hand it over to a priest because that's it. That's as far as you can go. You're separated from God. And you give it to this priest and everybody knows you're not right with God. And you sit there and you wait while they take that lamb up. They tie its feet. They put it on an altar and they slit its throat. And the blood runs down. I don't know how more, how visible you can get with your sin than that. They had something physical that they could take and they could see the cost of what they had done. They could see the cost of their sin literally flowing off the altar. We don't have that, which is great, and we'll get to that. But uh, we don't have that visual connection to the cost of our sins like, like the Israelites did in the beginning. So, so this sacrificial system, I think, uh, is important for us to realize that's how they atoned. That's how they were made right before God. That's how their sins were covered over, by the blood of a literal lamb. Okay? So I was thinking about this, and I was like, well, how do I sacrifice? I don't. I, I don't sacrifice anything. We don't sacrifice hardly anything in our society. So we sacrifice our time. I sacrifice my time to be with my kids, as if it's a burden, but it's not really. You know, We say those things, and I sacrifice money and... Uh, 
you know, I sacrifice money here, I sacrifice money elsewhere, but it's not a burden, to be honest. Like, I never go without. So this, this idea of sacrifice is something we need to wrestle with, or I need to wrestle with anyways, is, um, you know, my generation, I'm pretty sure we don't know how to spell sacrifice, literally. Um, we've had it pretty easy. So I know there's some in this church who have lived through uh, World War II, who have lost people, who have actually sacrificed their lives for others. That's the closest uh, representation in our world that I can come to of, of what it really means to sacrifice. And I'm not belittling any of the other things we do sacrificially. Um, those are important as well. But the sacrifice that, uh, that I'm talking about, that we're going to get into with Jesus, um, it's a whole other level. I envy the, the Israelite nation. I don't, I don't long to be there in that sacrificial system, but to have something physical like that to, to connect us to what our sins cost is, uh, is something valuable, I think. So, The other thing I wanted to touch on is the role of the high priest. And in Israel, we've talked about the Levite tribe. There's multiple tribes within the nation. The Levites were the ones and the only ones that could be the priests, that could stand between the sin of the people and God. And the high priest was top of the food chain. Um, Within the tribe of Levi, there's three different heretical lines. Um, The one that we need to worry about is the tribe of Aaron, so the brother of Moses. All your high priests of the nation came through the line of Aaron. And their job was they stood there and they were sort of the father of the spirituality of the nation. They made sure that all the other priests were doing what they needed to be doing, that they were um, healthy as a nation before God. But his main role, his main task as high priest was to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month of the year, the end of the calendar year for for the uh, Hebrew people. So he went and he sacrificed an actual um, heifer or a calf, and he took that blood and he carried it from the altar into the tabernacle, so through the first room, into the first room, and he would do some ceremonies there. There's a lampstand, and the the oil of the lampstand is there. And then beyond that is the most holy of holies, or the holy of holies, um, where God resided, and in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. And as he went through the first room, the walls are covered in wood and laid over with gold. And there's one lamp, uh, lampstand burning oil that gave light to that room. And then as he passes through the curtain into the, the most holy of holies, it's the same thing. There's gold on the walls. And as he goes in, there's no light but God's presence. And God's presence hovers over the, the mercy seat what it's called, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and there he sprinkles the blood of the lamb, blood of the goat, to make him and the nation clean before God, to repent of their sins for the year. So this was a huge deal. And this, was, this is what the high priest is there for. He's there for this moment to offer sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation to make them right before God. And... It was such a big deal, there's, there's a chance that if he wasn't right before God and he, he entered into that Holy of Holies and he saw the presence of God, he saw God there, he would drop dead if he wasn't right. Um, there's a tradition, it's not uh, anywhere in the Bible, that they used to tie a rope 
to the ankle of the high priest because nobody else could enter. So what do you do when a high priest drops dead? Maybe you've got to drag him out by the rope. There's nothing in the Bible about that. Um, it is just sort of a legend, whether it's true or not. But it, it tells you how awesome God's presence is and to step into it, um, what that means for them as worshipers and for us as Christians as well. So with that understanding of the sacrificial system and, and everything, the high priests and the priests, I wanted to read for you Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. I'll just read it. This is talking about Christ as our high priest. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness and from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This, this, is, this is the switch for us. Jesus is high priest. I know we've, we've probably talked about it and heard it um, lots of times, but there has been a shift from this sacrificial system where you drag a, a goat or a lamb to the slaughter to atone for your sins. It happened once. Sorry. <laughs> Dog's going crazy out there. Um, it happened once for... Uh, for all of us, when Jesus died on the cross, that is his day of atonement. When he, he shed his blood, he entered through the tabernacle and, and spread his blood on the mercy seat for us once and for all, the final sacrifice. Um, I think this would be a pretty radical shift of thinking if you're a Jew in the time, um, all of a sudden you're being told this, this system this repentance and atonement for sin through sacrifice is no longer needed. You've got a God who's done it for you. That was not just um, something they did, but it was what they identified as. They identified within this system, the sacrificial system of priests and high priests and all that, and now it's gone. Um, so it would be pretty scary, I think, making that switch to no longer needing to repent for your sins. It's commonplace for us today. Like, we repent for our sins, sorry, but there's no longer a need for sacrificing animals. Like, that's a big shift. So I wanted to read one more thing from Hebrews 4. Kind of, in all of this passage, and Peter, um, Peter's talking to these, uh, these people who have been dispersed. They're strangers in their own land because they no longer belong. They're no longer really practicing Jews. They're first century Christians and they're kind of lost. They've lost their identity, and Peter's trying to give them a little bit more um, knowledge about who they are in Christ. So Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, if you want to follow along. Um, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And this is the part that I wanted you to listen to. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. To a first century Christian, that would be, that would make you sit up and take notice because they're used to physically being separated from God. You do not go into the most holy of holies. And if you do, there's a good chance you might die. And now, Peter's telling these first century Christians, walk on up. Go up to the throne. Talk to your God. Be bold and be confident. And I think that that switch would be a challenge for them. And I think it's something for us as 20th century, 21st century Christians to take notice of too. Um, I think we've, we take it for granted sometimes, the access that we have with God. And we don't really understand the amazing gift that it is because we've never lived in a time where we didn't have our Father there to listen to, to talk to, to hear from. So for them, um, it's a huge shift. So in my mind, this first century church is perfect. And I highly doubt that that's the case. But looking back, that first century church was about as close to Jesus as you can get. Um, they had moved away from the sacrificial system because they now have a new high priest who has offered himself as a sacrifice. Uh, they have direct access to God. And for forever there's been this, this separation between God's believers, his worshipers, and God himself. At first it was with the tabernacle, it was set up there for our safety, separating God from our sin because... He couldn't be in the presence of our sin. Um, so it was there for a good reason. But we still, we were separated from God. Our worship wasn't demeaned or it wasn't less. We could still worship God. But our proximity and our access to God was limited. Uh, only a select few could access God. And now in the first century, it seems like everything's perfect. God has come and he's, he's created, he's, he's narrowed that gap. He's made it obsolete. And somewhere along the way, a couple hundred years after Christ, we got in the way again as humans and we decided, no, you know, we should set up a priesthood again that establishes a hierarchy and separates us from God because people can't be trusted. And I'm not, I think, I'm talking about the Roman church, not, you know, I think there was probably a good reason for that at the time, but we went through 1,200 years as, as believers where we didn't really have access to our God without going to a priest once again. And it was just a jump back to where we had already been but no longer needed to be. And for the longest time, the access to um, our sins being forgiven, we had to go through a priest or, or someone above us to absolve us of our sin before our Father. And that's not biblical. Um, that's not the way God had designed it. He wanted us to come to him directly through our, his son, through our high priest Jesus, to get forgiveness for our sins. And around, not around, 500 years ago this year, um, Martin Luther, a German theologian and teacher, basically said he'd had enough. And so he, he took, he wrote out 95 theses saying, um, these are the things that we as, as believers in a church are doing wrong and we need to we need to fix. And he went on October 31st, 1517, nailed it to the door of the church and started a reformation. And at the time, it was a huge deal. And it went on for years, the debate, and it finally ended with uh, Martin Luther's excommunication from the Catholic Church and brings us to basically where we are today. 500 years of 
reformed thinking in our faith. And 95 theses, two of them are ones that I really think are important for us today. Uh, Martin Luther argued that, one, we should all have access to the Word of God. Believers, everyone should be able to access God's Word, read it, interpret it, understand it for themselves. And that was radical thinking, partially because I think 500 years ago the majority of people were illiterate. So your teaching, your understanding of your God was given to you by someone who could actually read the Latin or the Greek. So um, you can see how there is reasoning for this, but that started us down this path of everybody, everybody, word in their language, um, the gospel for for all. And one of the other main theses that he had was the priesthood of all believers. And he argued that this access to God is not something that is owned by a select few or um, can be held in a powerful position to get people to do what they wanted. He he argued that that everybody should have fair and free access to their God because that's the way it was designed to be. But somewhere along the way, we, we, people, got in the way. Um, And so this sort of understanding of the separation that we've had from God and, and the trouble we have when we don't have somebody telling us what to do and how we eventually, I hope, have come back to this realization that we have a God that we can access directly um, is pretty important. And that sort of brings us all back to where we started with First uh, Peter today. So with that sort of backstory, I want to read just chapter 9, First Peter 1, First Peter 2, 9, uh, once more. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So it has a little bit more meaning, I think, now as we've gone back and we've seen sort of the history of the nation of Israel, of us as people. Um, But remember who Peter's talking to. He's talking to these dispersed and ostracized Christians. They don't really belong as Jews because they don't look the same. They don't act the same anymore. And they've lost their identity. So this, this phrase of a chosen people is not something new to Jews or the Israelite nation. Um, it's, it's what they're used to being called. They're a chosen people. They have been a chosen people since the beginning of time. But now all of a sudden, these Christians are no longer a chosen people because they've stepped away from that nation. And, and what Peter's doing here is he's saying to them, no, 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 wait, you are chosen. You're chosen beyond what you were chosen before. You're chosen to be a son or a daughter of our king, of our God, because of Jesus. And that, to them, gives them an identity again. It gives us identity as well. Um, I feel like I'm an alien within Canada a lot of times. You know, I was born here. I grew up here. I'm a, I'm a good Canadian guy, right? But this isn't my home. I don't think the way I should. I don't believe the things I should as a Christian. I'm an alien here. And, and this is, for me, realizing that my identity isn't a Canadian. My identity is a son of God, a child of God. That's who I am. Um, I just happen to live in Canada. I love my country, but uh, I love my God more. So this gives these, uh, these first century Christians some identity. Um, it wasn't God saying, or Peter saying to them, man, you're done, you've done a really good job. Congratulations, you are a chosen people. Had nothing to do with them at all. 
It's him saying, you chose to follow the true God, and by mercy, by the mercy of God, I have chosen you. You are now my children. And that's pretty powerful to someone who's floating around in the world, not really sure where they belong. So the, the other part out of here is the royal priesthood. And I think that's probably, um, that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, basically. So for them to hear, you are a royal priesthood, would have been, um, they would have really sat up and taken notice. Partially because they understand the role of a priest. So I'm not a Levi. How can I be a priest? Somebody's going to think that right off the start, right? I'm not a Levi. How can I be a priest? That's their job. That's the select few who get to have access to God in that way. Um, But what Peter's saying is, no, no, you're a royal priesthood. And the fact that he says you're a royal priesthood makes a difference. In the time of Israel, there were tribes. Your Levites were your priests. Judah, originally Benjamin, those tribes, that's your monarch, your monarchy. Your kings come from those tribes, and you don't mix the two. There, you can't have a priest and a king, except for one exception. Um, there's Levites over here taking care of the spiritual health of the country. There's the tribe of Judah, King David, that sort of thing, taking care of the nation. Okay? And it specifically states on multiple occasions in the Bible, you don't mix the two. There's a time where Saul was getting ready to go into battle. This is in 1 Samuel 4. Um, getting ready to go into battle against the Philistines. And Samuel said, I will come in seven days and I'm going to offer um, burnt offerings. I'm going to come and administer some ceremonies before you go into battle. And on day seven, um, Samuel doesn't show up on time and Saul's thinking, those Philistines are getting pretty darn close. I think I'm just going to take care of business. So he gets some burnt offerings. He burns them. He offers them up to God on the behalf of his nation, his army that's about to go into battle. And then Samuel shows up and says, well, you can't do that. That's not your job. And it wasn't like, hey, you know, it wasn't a union deal. You can't do that. That's the job of the priests. Um, it, was, it was him saying, you haven't been set aside. That's not how God wants you to act. Your job is king, my job is priest. And he says that. He says to Saul, he says, you've lost favor with your God because you tried to be more than who you were. And, and at that time, he loses favor with God and Samuel tells Saul, your line will end. God has found somebody else who is after your own heart and he's going to become the king of Israel. And at that point, we switch from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah uh, being the, the royal line. Okay? So there isn't this, you can't mix the two. There's another uh, in Ezra, King Uzziah. He, uh, he tries, tries to do the same thing, gets nailed with leprosy and dies. So for them to hear in the first century, you are a royal priesthood, means something. Okay? So it all comes back to Jesus, like it always does. Um, we, have, we have this new high king, sorry, high priest who, who we stand behind, who stands between Christ or between God and us. And because of that, we are co-heirs in everything that he has. All the burdens and the blessings, everything that is Christ is ours. Romans 8, 17 talks about being co-heirs with Christ. And, and because of this, 
we can be called royal priests. Jesus, being a descendant of David from the line of Judah, he is an earthly king. He's a royal line. But he is also, if you go back to Hebrews, chapter 4 through chapter 8, um, it's a really good read. Do it tonight. Because um, there will be a quiz tomorrow. Uh, Hebrews 4 through 8 talks about the high priest. Christ was a high priest uh, of the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was the one and only exception that I know of in the Bible where you actually did have a successful king and priest together. And Jesus is a descendant of Melchizedek. So that's how we can get to this royal priesthood, him being both high priest and king at the same time. And be, us being co-heirs in that, we share in that. So when Peter's telling them, you are a royal priesthood, they would have, it would have really meant something to them. They are nothing, they are lost, they are spread throughout Asia, uh, and they don't have a home and they don't belong. And all of a sudden he's saying, no, 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 wait, you're a chosen people. You're chosen by God for a specific pers- purpose. And not only that, you're a royal priesthood. And I think, as we've already sort of talked about it, the roles of the royalty and the priests is important um, to, to sort of flesh that out because the job of royalty is to fight battles. That's really what it all came down to for, for King David or Saul or any of them, really. They were fighting battles for their nation. When they were doing it well, they were fighting God's battles. They were fighting against uh, evil of the world, people persecuting them as a nation, um, unbelief. It's no different for us. If we think of ourselves as kings and queens of this priestly order, of this royal line that we are, um, our battles are the same. We still fight against evil, um, unjust, disbelief, uh, all those sort of things. Nothing's really changed. It's just the job has fallen to us now. And as priests, when, when he tells these first century Christians and ourselves as well that we're priests, is that we, we stand in the middle. We stand in that chasm between those who don't know or, or deny Christ as God and our God. We're there to intercede on their behalf, to pray for them, to um, try to teach, to try to help people understand this gift that's been given to us, that there was this high priest who shed his blood and sacrificed himself for us. You know, nobody, if you don't read the Bible, and the vast majority of our country will not read the Bible. So their understanding of who God is and who Christ is is going to be me and you and how we act and how we look in society. Um, that's, that's it, to be honest. I don't, I've never got a single person to read the Bible because I said, hey, you should read this. Um, people look at me and they either see something normal, just a normal guy that works at the college and does the same thing on the weekends that everybody else does, or they look at me and they say, oh, there's something just a little bit different about that person. And that's going to be their introduction to God. That's going to be them saying, oh, there is something different. There is something more um, going on. People drive by here on a Sunday. There's something weird happening here. That's, that's how we connect people to God. So it might feel like a, a really onerous burden to be called these royal priests. And it is. There's some burdens. There's some great blessings. Uh, I don't think we should lose the fact that uh, we have direct access to our Lord. We can walk and talk with him whenever it, uh, whenever it pleases us. 
That's not something the majority of believers from the beginning till about 1517, 500 years ago, really fully had this freedom that we have. So we need to understand that. Um, we have lots of opportunities to share our faith, which a lot of people in the world don't have. Um, and I think being co-heirs, understanding that we are sharing in all that is Christ's, is, is something that we need to grasp. We need to understand that he's as unworthy as I am. He's chosen me to be with him in heaven, to rule with him, to share in his blessings. But at the same time, there's, uh, there's some burdens, there's some expectations of us. And, and this country, whether you're Canadian or whether you're American, your country in America, um, that spirituality and the faith of that nation, it rests on our shoulders. It's so easy to say, man, Canada's fallen apart. There's just some bad decisions being made by some ungodly people. But that's not biblical. That's not the way that the priestly order was set up. They stood there in the middle of the nation, dealing with the health of the nation, the spiritual health of the nation and their connection to God. And we are standing here, physically in Balfour, in the middle of Balfour, in the middle of BC, in the middle of Canada, and the health of our nation is just falling apart. And it's so easy to say, oh, good to be saved. But it's not. Um, that burden should weigh on us. We should be praying for Balfour. You should be praying for your neighbors. I should be. I don't do a great job. It's so easy to go to work and come home and go to work and come home and not even think about the people across the street from me. And I know where they are with God. That should weigh on me. I should carry that burden because I've been given this task as a holy a royal priest, my God, my high priest, has asked me to do this. And he's asked all of us. And it, and it is a burden. It's hard. Um, I have family who have no desire to know God. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And, you know, when I think of how, how are we going to save Canada, I pray. Just pray. And that's all you can do. That was the role of the priest. Stand there, pray to God, speak back to the nation when you have an opportunity to share God with them. But I think more locally, globally here, we have, and maybe it's because I'm in the midst of it, we have, I have three kids, and, but we have a church full of kids, and they are going to be the next Balfour Church. They are going to be a part of this country, Canada, um, this world that we call home. And if we're not pouring into them, if we're not speaking truth into their lives, if we're not um, visibly and outwardly showing them that God rules in our lives, where else are they going to learn it? They're not going to learn it at school. They may, you know, um, but there's a good chance they're not. And I saw, I think it was Rick who sent out a, an email last week saying, you know, when do people become Christians? When do they fall in love with God and, and, and give their lives over? And I think it was ages 4 to 14, 75% or something like that. 83% of people become Christians between the ages of 4 and 14. And then I think it was like 1% over the age of 40, something like that. That's not to say, well, you're over 40, tough luck, you're out of it. But... But that's to show us 
1% over the age of 40 come. There you go. So we're not going to quit because amazing things happen and God works in amazing ways. But if you want to see the kingdom of God, you know, if you want to build that kingdom, if you want to fight for that kingdom, then it starts here with my kids. All these kids that were sitting up here, your grandkids, uh, the kids in your neighborhood, and then the youth. And then it starts with the young adults. And then it grows and it grows and it grows. And eventually, when we get to the end and God asks us, and we do have that test, and he says, you know, did you stand in the middle for me? Hopefully we can all say we did. It didn't work out maybe the way we had hoped. You know, maybe my parents die and they're no longer and they have no desire to know God. That's going to be heartbreaking if and when that happens. But can I stand in front of God and say I tried. I prayed, you know? I was broken and burdened because of it. If you can do that, then you are being a royal priesthood. Okay, a chosen people, but uh it's not easy. Nobody said it was going to be. Uh, it, it wrecks me and breaks me to see um, the people I love lose their lives for things that mean nothing. And, and it should. And sometimes it doesn't as much as it should. I become apathetic to everyday life. You know, I become apathetic to how do people... like I be, Christ died on, this, on the cross and he shed his blood for me. That should wreck me every time I say it, but it doesn't. I have no way to connect to that. We talked about that as a society. We have no way to connect to sacrifice. This, when we pull this table down and we have communion, that's our connection to the sacrifice. That's as close as we get. And sometimes, for me, it means everything. And sometimes, it's just something I do. And that's me. That's not communion losing its power. It's me being apathetic and disconnected from who my God is and what he's done for me. Um, I think if we want to live in a world where we're changed by what God has done for us, we actually have to play a part in that. We have to think, we have to you know, sit there and contemplate how great is it that a man died and shed his blood for me so that I can approach this throne with confidence, with boldness. I can stand before my God without the fear of death. I can be consoled. I can be loved. And, and I think if we don't do our part, either reading through this, praying, then it's just going to be an apathetic life where life just passes us by and we miss out on those opportunities to be a blessing. And I don't think we're lacking for opportunities. Um, I know I'm lacking in faith sometimes. I know I'm lacking in my willingness to say something when I really know I don't want to, but I should. But, uh, but it's the burden that we've been given as Christians. So I'm going to just pray uh, about that. And, and then we'll move.